0: How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel the D3 Cohen, I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters the studios here in my garage. I'm an 18-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, as Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, I can be accomplished by a young artists and producer. This show is for people who love music and love to hear about how it's made. Hopefully, there will be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Though, I hope this show will be especially helpful for all the people like me working in their own home studios. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work in home studios, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. On our last episode, we had Mr. Tree Adams on the program and he gave us a very insightful look on the composer space and working for film and TV uh, while also maintaining status as a rock and roll musician. Tree, thank you for being on. Um, I had a lovely time talking with you and I can't wait to get you up in my studio sometime soon. For this episode we have a very dear friend and my own mentor, Mr. Phil Billy Milner. (music) Phil Billy Milner has had a long and storied career. Having been born into the radio industry and learning to work on electronics from an early age, Phil was essentially built for working in the musicals. Starting as a guitar player in rock bands in his teens, Phil eventually found himself as an advanced electronics technician on various ships for the US Navy. Following his departure in the Navy, Phil ended up becoming a guitar name technician, eventually going from his shop in San Francisco to a road tech for Bob Weir and Rat Dog. After his tenure with Rat Dog, Phil found himself as a touring guitarist all around the world with his now wife, Jenny Curro. In recent years, Phil has been a man around the bay, doing a couple hundred club gigs a year, and repairing guitars and amps for players' all skill levels, as well as doing some damn fine recording with Jenny Kerr, the Keller Sisters, and Eric McFadden, just to name a few. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Mr. Phil Billy Milner. Well... Uh, Mr. Phil Milner, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Mr. Cohen.
1: Uh, it's uh, good to be here with you tonight.
0: Well, you know, I wanted to jump into some of the early stuff you've done, not just in the music space, but starting out in your early life, because you have an interesting history. Your father was in radio, and you grew up around all that stuff. What what kept you in the electronics and recording space?
1: Well, that's that's easy. I mean, like you said, it's it's in my blood. My father, he was actually doing his very first um, on-air radio show in Long Beach the night that I was born. It was just a little tiny AM Top 40 station in a trailer on top of Signal Hill. And, you know, so yeah, I was born to it. And then I was, um, you know, what you'd call a radio brat. We just moved all over the Place while my father was building his radio career and not only was he a broadcaster an engineer and a voice actor but um he was also a broadcast engineer so he uh, he wore a lot of hats and uh, and I grew up you know sleeping under mixing boards and radio transmitters so that was all there I would uh learned how to use um, transmitters and recording machines, all that stuff. I learned how to edit tape when I was eight. So uh, so there you have it. And uh, I just have always known that, always had a an aptitude and an interest in it. So so it was pretty natural for the rest of my life to you know, go
0: along those lines. Sure, sure. I mean, I think I see the parallel of being born in the music industry. It just sort of keeps you there because it's the family business. Indeed. Yeah. Um, when you were, what, you were 18. Uh, you ended up joining the Navy as a Navy electronics man uh, serving aboard a ship. Um, that heavily... No, that was
1: actually a little bit later. It wasn't until ah, okay. I was my early 20s. I believe I was 24
0: at that time. Gotcha. I wasn't entirely remembering the exact years that you were
1: you no, know, up that you until that time, I was mainly uh, living my life as a degenerate guitar player in various club bands, <laughs> starting you know starting when I was eighteen and up until about that time, um, just playing guitar in rock and roll bands, top forty, new wave, you know whatever was going on at the time. So um, then when I got to be uh, about twenty four, as I said uh it was uh like a <laughs> it was time to make a little bit of a change and maybe grow up a little bit so i took that detour and uh enlisted uh because i was guaranteed the advanced electronics training which um they delivered on and i ended up excelling so um that was sort of a a stock in trade that i continue to apply to this day right
0: that was sort of your father's idea wasn't it
1: Yes, it was. We were. I was. I was kind of floundering. You know, I was. I was young, stupid, playing rock and roll, and and probably uh, drinking too much. And and he said, you know, uh, I was in the navy right before you were born, and I loved it, and I wished I'd have stayed in a little bit longer. And and uh, I thought, well, it's just so crazy, it might just work. And <laughs> uh, and uh, due to doing well on various aptitude tests. Um, they uh, they were eager to take me, and uh, yeah, the rest is history.
0: And how long were you in the Navy?
1: <laughs> it was six years. I had to uh, sign a six year obligation because they want to get their money's worth out of you. And the training alone was amounted to the first two years of my time in, uh, including boot camp. It was two solid years of training, hmm. and uh, so you know. A normal enlistment would be four years. They want to get more than two years of work out of you when they put that much money into it. And, um, it, it was expensive training for them.
0: Right. I, uh, that's a, <laughs> it's a definitely a worthwhile investment in a person for that long. Yeah.
1: I, I have to admit, I jumped right in eyes open wide, you know, it never really occurred to me, uh, that it was going to be that long. I just, I just went for it, and uh, it turned out fine. I really did have a great time in, and the places that I was stationed turned out to be pretty cushy, too, so my overall lifestyle was pretty good. I did go to sea a lot, but I also ended up, you know, basically uh, living in San Diego, uh, a really nice lifestyle, so it was good. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, while you were in, were you still how, how much did you play? I, we've talked about this briefly, not, not enough for me to really have a deep understanding of what you were, what your playing not, was like.
1: Right. It, it was not very much because I had sort of made the conscious decision to not be a musician for the time that I was in. Mm-hmm. And, um, but after a few years, once I was settled onto my first ship, um, when we'd be out to sea for six months, Uh, I found a few like-minded fellas and and we just jammed together and then we play like (laughs) they would have picnics on the on the aft end of the ship on the helicopter deck and they'd have barbecues and and we would play and everybody would uh, eat hot dogs and it was just a little three-piece thing we just played classic rock for fun but I did not play uh, professionally for those six years but I did continue to practice and that was the time that Towards the end, when I started working on guitar amplifiers, basically just taking my electronics training and, and putting it to that practical use uh, so that when I eventually got out in early 91, um, that kind of became my uh, straight job, if you can call it that, fixing sure. amps and guitars.
0: Right. Now, a lot of people know you up here in the Bay Area for being... Uh, Phil Billy Milner of EARS Electronic Audio Repair Service. Um, when you got out in 91, how did you basically how'd you make your way up here to the Bay Area?
1: Uh, my my ex-wife and I, we, we were living in San Diego for uh most of the of my enlistment there. And um, right before I got out, I got a call from uh a gentleman who was one of my high school music teachers. He ran a music and recording program at Mendocino High School, where I graduated. And he said and he uh, had a really nice uh, recording studio up there in Mendocino, inland. Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, I have uh, this band coming in to do their Warner Brothers debut. They're called Sister Double Happiness. Apparently they're going to be the next big thing out of the Bay Area. And this was right at when grunge was breaking. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, that song uh, um, Alive by Pearl Jam had just broke. And uh, this is right, I think, uh, R.E.M., the what was the uh, Losing My Religion? Religion. This right. was right, yeah, when really tuneful, um, you know, kind of uh, grungy folk rock, that whole thing was exploding. And these guys were going to be Barry Arias' answer to, you know, Pearl Jam. And it was actually before um, Kurt Cobain and all that. Anyway, uh, he said he needed a second engineer to come and and help out uh, at the studio for that record. So we went up there and lived in a cabin while we did that record for about three months. And then once that was done, uh, his studio didn't actually have any more contracts. So um, we decided to just move to the city. And uh, it was as simple as that. We found an apartment near the H and I hung a shingle and started fixing amplifiers. Really just because I didn't want to go and uh, go to some big weird avionics company and start fixing commercial electronics or whatever. I wanted to, you know, do something that was a little less regimented. So I got very busy, very quickly fixing guitar amps here in the Bay Area. And, uh, yeah, that was that for about 10 years.
0: Right. And even now, I mean, you're still, you're still very well. Yeah. uh, I do that in my garage.
1: Well, it's a good, you know, I don't really run any kind of a big business. I don't have a storefront. I work out of my garage and it just keeps a little bit of cash coming in. But, uh, you know, I also, um, also produce records here in, uh, our own little going concern called Okie Doke Records, Okie Doke Studios. And uh, yeah, so that keeps going. And then, of course, uh, my wife, Jenny Kerr, and I, we, up until COVID, were uh, very, very busy playing gigs as the Jenny Kerr Band. We toured all over Europe throughout the 2000s, and and uh, we're very busy with that. So I was making a living playing music for quite a while.
0: Right. You were also on the road with Rat Dog for a while.
1: Ow. That that was another lifetime. <laughs> this was the, the mid-90s, and uh, I was, uh, as I said, running my shop. Um, I had a, uh, a regular storefront shop at a rehearsal studio in San Francisco. And uh, at that time, I did some work. I did a really good rust job for a guitar player named Adam Levy and uh, he's a pretty semi-famous uh, jazz rock guitar player who's played with Tracy Chapman and Nora Jones, among others. Hmm. And uh, he had a gig downtown, and I fixed his amplifier, and I delivered it to them to him, and he was very grateful. Some months later, I got a call from him and said, listen, I just got a gig playing guitar with Tracy Chapman, and uh, she's going to do kind of a short comeback tour. She had been off the road after her massive success, she hadn't done anything for a few years. So she mm. was gonna do a kind of a feeler tour, just two or three weeks in the, a college tour, in, mostly in the Midwest. And he said that she needs a guitar tech. And I had never been a guitar tech on the road, uh, but I was doing a lot of you know high-end service for musicians in the Bay Area. So I figured, well, I like to travel. <laughs> How hard could it be? So I I went to the studio and she was actually renting the rehearsal studio over in Alameda that was owned by Journey at the time, hmm. and uh, so we rehearsed there for a couple of weeks. My audition consisted of basically being at the rehearsals and um, learning the set and figuring out you know how to do that workflow as an onstage guitar technician, and I was just 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 kept my ears and eyes open and tried to figure it out as I went along. And then we went on tour. We we're out for three weeks and, um, it was, it was, a uh, it was stressful. You know, I made a lot of rookie mistakes, but I learned a lot and, uh, I did have a great time. Tracy is an amazing artist, but also, a, a very harsh task mistress. So I had to be on my toes and, uh, You know, like I said, I did make a few mistakes, but during that time, uh, the monitor engineer named Matt was also, well, the whole sound company was uh, all guys from um, Ultrasound in San Rafael who, who were, they were kind of a boutique sound system who uh, did the exclusive uh, sound for the Grateful Dead, as well as Primus and Toad the Wet Sprocket. And I believe Hmm. Tool So they were, you know, super high-end, like I said, boutique. Anyway, um, the engineer on that gig uh, noticed my work. And when it was, what happened? Oh, yes. So Matt asked me if I would come and do guitars for Bob Weir at a Earth Day concert in the Presidio. And I, I, believe it or not, actually am sort of a deadhead. So it was a no-brainer. Mm. And uh I I took care of Bob while he was on it was a very casual thing. And he was just trying out Rat Dog at that time. It was just four guys, him and Matt, jay Lane, and Rob Wasserman. And uh it was just supposed to be Bobby's little side project for fun between dead tours. Right. And uh so I was on stage with him and took care of him, and he was very impressed with my work. And later on backstage, he said, Hey, I want you to see something here. And uh he opens up a guitar case and it's the this beautiful 335 that I recognized immediately from the grateful dead's Europe 72 album cover, kind of an iconic guitar for me. Cause, uh, it was, right. that was a, inspirational when I was learning to play guitar. And he asked me if I would come out on the road, they were going to be going out in a couple of months and asked if I would, uh, come on out with them. So of course I did. <laughs> it was again, a no brainer. And, uh, we went out, and we started on the East Coast, and the very first night, we were in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, and uh, the next day, me and Jay were uh, walking around uh, down on the beach, little boardwalk shops there. We saw all these kind of hippies laying around looking kind of sad, and and then we came across one with a bunch of candles and a picture of Garcia, and we, Jay and I looked at each other, and we said, uh, there's something wrong here. We got back to the hotel and that's where we learned that Garcia had died the night before. Oof. Uh, yeah, it was pretty heavy. Long story short, um, Bobby and a couple of the other, you know, people in the band went back for the, you know, basically for the memorial services while we stayed there to, des- while they decided what was going to happen with the tour. And of course it was decided that Jerry would have wanted us to play. And what was supposed to be a little low key under the radar tour became the music media event of the season. It Mm. was, it was huge. Every single gig was packed to overflow. We were setting up outdoor speakers for people out in the parking lots and on the beaches. And, uh, that was the beginnings that I ended up. I was Bob's, uh, on the road guitar tech for nearly three years until, uh, I had a motorcycle accident that kind of put a stop to that. So, yeah, that was a whole other side trip. And during that time, um, you know, I went out on short runs or even did one offs for um, some interesting people like Primus and Bonnie Raid and um, Graham Nash did a little bit of work for Sonic Youth, that kind of thing. It was, it was fun.
0: Nice. So as far as rat dog work you were with them for three years they released two records what evening moods in 2000 then the live record no one were you um was there ever a point where uh during your tenure they were talking about a record slash recording anything
1: no that hadn't really come up yet um just as the Grateful Dead, uh, shows were always recorded in some way or another, either it was just two track board tapes once in a while, um, they would bring in something more multi-track. And so I think that some of that stuff did end up there, but during the time that I was with them up until, uh, early 98, they hadn't actually said, okay, we're doing a record now. Um, I am uh gratified to to say that it turns out they gave me credit on that record though they said thanks to Phil Billy you know for being there for us even though by then I was actually gone I was hurt pretty bad
0: Gotcha Now being that you have been both a live guitar tech and a a more traditional in shop guitar tech where did you find the biggest similarities and differences? Um, let's
1: see. The main differences with guitar tech is that you're there to support a performance that's happening in real time. Sure. And uh, so the thing is, uh, and then the similarities are you want to have everything in great condition. You want to prepare as much as possible. So if, you know, if I'm servicing a piece of gear to gear or guitar, Here in the shop, it's going to go out soon. I don't know. Maybe it'll go out that night to a gig. But uh, you want to make damn sure that when it leaves the shop, everything is as impeccable as it can be. When you're on the road, stuff happens. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as a broken string. Other times, you know, the whole wireless system might crap out. Uh, So you have to be ready for all kinds of eventualities. In my case, because my troubleshooting, my actual real electronics troubleshooting workflow experience uh, was so vast, um, that came in pretty handy on the road sometimes. You know, being able to visualize a system from the top to the bottom and uh, figure out where the problem lies, you know, based on um, indications, various symptoms, that kind of thing. I could do that very, very quickly. Um, after having to fix, say, a satellite receiver out in the middle of the the Indian Ocean to get back online, being <laughs> fixing a guitar uh during a show is nothing right, or similar, you could even say, yeah, it's mission critical
0: <laughs> pertaining to each and everybody's individual mission. I could see how that works.
1: Yeah, and, you know, uh, being on stage there, it's, it's very exciting. But uh, at the same time, you got to keep your eye on the ball at all times. And, um, you know, that meant keeping my eye on Bobby and Rob Wasserman. I was also the base tech. Um, he didn't require, you know, quite as much once he was set up. And I also kept my eye closely on Jay Lane just in case he needed anything.
0: How you doing, everybody? This is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. we got to take a short break here, but stick around. We'll be back with a little bit more Phil Billy Milner in just a second. Now, when you got back from these tours and you started setting up your studio, Okie Doke, um, where did you find yourself... uh, What did you find yourself gravitating towards the most? Um, were Were you big into being that you were a guitar and amp tech? Were you big into getting your instruments and amp equipment right? Were you more... Uh, Going back to basics with how you grew up and finding yourself, okay, what machines am I going to be using? Am I, at the time, I'm assuming you're having the digital versus analog conversation with yourself still.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, to be clear, this didn't come up, my recording, um, you know, all that didn't come up, although I grew up with it and I was familiar with it. I didn't start it in earnest until after Jenny and I uh, got together in 1998, And uh, we became we became a couple pretty quickly, but we're friends on the San Francisco um, club scene for many years before that. And uh, she decided to form her own band and asked if I would join. And then once we became um, you know uh, persons of office at sex sharing living quarters, um, it was natural for us to the idea was to start making records of her songs and she happens to be a fantastic songwriter, singer, and multi-instrumentalist. So we decided instead of going and spending $5,000 in a studio, let's spend the money on a studio. And uh, I I felt confident that, you know, given my aptitude, I could uh, go ahead and take that on. So um, we started out with a digital hard disk system and, Um, I produced uh, several records over the next three or four years using, you know, it was basically an all in one solution Mm -hmm. that burned a disc at the end of the whole thing. Um, So, no, and we never had the budget, never even really thought about doing analog because um, by then, by 99, certainly by 2000, you could see that uh, the writing was on the wall for uh, analog tape. Right. And we certainly weren't going to roll an MCI twenty four track, two inch into the house. (laughs) (laughs) It just wasn't going to
0: happen. Right. Yeah. I, I understand that one. I mean, even, even here, we, we, we have, we have great ideas about putting a quarter inch machine from, you know, Revox or even Tiac in here, but you know, we don't have delusions of grandeur. We're aware that tape is expensive and we can do the same thing with digital, relatively speaking. Uh,
1: so most people feel, I would have to say that um, the quality of sound of digital software has certainly taken leaps and bounds since I started doing this in 90, 99, 2000. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yes, for instance, if you want to get a tape sound, there are several tape saturation simulators that actually do um, do work pretty well you know in sort of getting a bit of what you might call sonic shellac sure but it would be also easy if you just wanted to take a two track for instance and mix everything down to that um that'd be the real thing and it would be sort of a uh an easy way to get into that if without having to go the the full route of actually multi-tracking on tape
0: of course I mean, I think that's a big thing nowadays is uh, even even in pro studios as pro studios get bigger and bigger track counts. And, you know, you can only sync so many two-inch tape machines together at once. Um, I, th- I think plenty of people are going for two and four track to get, you know, maybe even eight track for 5.1 surround sound if you so choose to mix down to tape for a surround sound system. Anyhow, I've I've been seeing people doing the hybrid mixing thing where they, you know, pull uh, stems out and use their vintage, you know, UA-1176s, LA-2As, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, outside of the box instead of plug-ins and then mix it down either back in through the DAW or, or even into a summing mixer and then out to a two-inch or, excuse me, a quarter-inch two-track yeah. machine. Seems like a neat way to go assuming you have the infrastructure for it of course
1: yeah i mean if you have the space and the money for a large format large frame console it would be really fun to have those that workflow available to you you'd essentially be using the your daw as a tape deck and for its editing capabilities and i guess uh, from what i've seen a lot of people will use all the analog gear and plugins. It just depends on what's best for the song, what they have available. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind myself, but uh, I can't say that I have really been hot to explore it. And uh, I'm really happy with the mixes that I'm getting now in the box. And I do have a nice selection of outboard gear for the inputs. And for me, sure. The mics and the preamps are just where the rubber meets the road.
0: Right. And and I mean, you've not been recording amps for quite a while either, have you? I mean a, a lot of very rare. You, yeah. A lot of the stuff you do is plug in bass nowadays.
1: Well, um I'll let you in on a little secret. Um most of the electric guitars that I tracked over the years were using a pod, an old uh Line 6 Pod 2.0, and um, a lot of people turn their nose up at it. And, and you know, it's not for everybody, but if you play it right, if you use it right in the right context, you can get great sounds out of it. And, you know, I, I get great sounds out of it. Um, one guy I produced a lot of records for is Eric McFadden, and uh, he's
0: pretty happy with with that. And so, you know, everybody's got their thing. Of course i mean i don't know if i'd trade in my uh my pre-cbs basement that everybody who seems to come in this studio knows and loves so much but you know I, it's definitely a great option i mean and especially now with the helix everything line six has been doing with the helix software that just sounds great
1: well there's a whole lot i mean they were the first to really do it right but there's right. plenty of other stuff now the helix um, but also the Kemper Profiler. There's a bunch of great stuff out there, and apparently now you can't even tell the difference. So, um, so why not? Having said that, um, lately in the last couple of years since we moved up here to Marin County, um, I have recorded amplifiers more frequently and had a lot of fun doing it because we have we have more rooms up here and uh, more options for getting cool tones
0: that way. Sure. I mean, I remember you were, at one point, you were a Line 6 amp guy, and then you traded the your Line 6 gigging amp for a, what do you have now, a Fender? Do, yeah, I'm just using a that? Fender.
1: It's a supersonic. It's basically right. just kind of a souped-up deluxe reverb. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just uh, for the gigs that we're doing, I don't need a really loud, high-powered amplifier, and I was just really enjoying the sound of, of real tubes. I said, like, eh,
0: why not? I get what you mean. I mean, in here, haven't I? Mean you've you've been in my studio. You know what this place looks like. It's a little cleaner now since last you've been. <laughs> I here. saw the pictures. But, uh, it looks beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I don't have many valve amps in here. I don't, you know, the majority of my amplifiers are solid state right now. But even so, moving air and being able to mic up cabs is still quite fun, especially when you have a live band in here, and you're just doing it and you don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. It's a whole lot of fun to move air.
1: There is, and there's nothing like the sound of a well-recorded band who's well-rehearsed playing great songs. There's there's just nothing like it. Um, another thing I should mention, too, is with the amp thing, because I fixed them, um, you know, it's incumbent on me to make sure that they do sound right. So I've taken to... Uh, If I've got an electric guitar track to do, you know, I'll I'll take my customer's amp, drag it in here and throw a mic on it and see what it sounds like when it's recorded. So a little extra special, um, (laughs) you know, actual operational test.
0: Right. You know, this is a this is a total personal question because I know you and I know the gear that you have in your studio. You have a 70s Ampeg flip top, one of the solid state ones. Have you been recording that at all?
1: no because um when i got it in it was broken and actually i don't have it anymore because it was broken i spent several hours troubleshooting it and um i've never really spent a lot of time doing fix and flip i have enough amps to work on that i can do routinely without spending a bunch of time on stuff that's broken so um i ended up just uh selling that for cheap uh as kind of a Uh, mechanic special if you will sure but i you know i have anecdotal evidence that those are pretty good and actually it's a pretty good bargain if you can find one
0: yeah having (laughs) ampeg is that one company that everybody goes to in studio i mean there's there's there are a lot of good bass amps nowadays but everybody in studio seems to go back to either the old Ampeg gear or the old acoustic heads, they, they, those they, seem they to be do the ones. They sound
1: fantastic, but, um, you know, 99% of the time I'm just recording bass direct. And I have a couple of preamps that, uh, really do a nice job of that. My go-to one is the universal audio LA 610, which is a, uh, their tube channel strip. And right. You plug that thing in, dial in a little of the input tube to overdrive it just a little bit, and it just sounds like a fantastic old tube amp um, without the noise and without uh, making the neighbors hate your guts. (laughs) Of course. Also record a lot with uh, the Noble tube preamplifier. It's a really high-end little tube preamp DI that came out a few years ago. A bunch and, of my uh, bass player friends have been gushing over them. It's fantastic. It's really, really good. So I like that one a lot. And um, if I'm looking for something cleaner and more n- but gnarly at the same time, um, my uh, Warm Audio Tone Beast preamp is really nice for a little of that AP-style iron.
0: Yeah, I've honestly been looking at Warm Audio Gear, their 500-series their Tone Beast Um for those of you who don't know Warm Audio, they make some damn fine gear and a lot of really neat clones of of vintage API and some Neve. They have a 1073 channel strip clone and all the old uh, Poltec and UA gear that you could ever want, uh, they make very good clones of. And apparently they're making the
1: best U47 and uh, KM84 clones. That anybody's doing right now for a
0: ridiculously low price. They're eighty sevens, they're sixty sevens, they're forty sevens. I think they even have a two fifty one clone right now that's doing that sounds really close as well. Would wouldn't be surprised. Um, so yes, this is this is by no means a sponsored content for for Warm Audio. We just love their gear. Um, speaking of Warm Audio, actually continuing this conversation, you and I both use Reason. Um, You were the one who turned me on to Reason uh, when you sold me an old rig of mine, my very first recording rig many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, And for those who don't know Reason, uh, the Mix Window is a virtualized SSL console complete with the bus compressor from a G-Series port. And you can buy them from SSL. There are a couple different places that make clones, Chameleon Labs being one of the most popular Uh, But Warm Audio just started making one that is very comparable and adds some things that surprisingly the original never had. Have you seen that one? Have you heard audio demos of that one?
1: I have not. In fact, that's news to me um, because I've been thinking very much about uh, taking the two track out of the box. And uh, that would, because I always mix with a bus compressor. So. Um, I have looked closely at several units and did not know that Tone Beast had one.
0: Yeah, Warm Audio has one now. There is the Chameleon Labs. I think they call it the seventy seven twenty. Um, and those are those are quite lovely as well. But Warm Audio has added a couple of additional features, I believe. Um they also just started cloning radial DIs.
1: <laughs> which is well, funny. As long as you make it strong enough, it's just a uh, um, it's just a Jensen transformer and uh, in a nice steel
0: box. So that's not too hard. Of course. Um, Now, since we were talking about reason for a second, what what got you to reason? What what was the what was what was the idea of saying, oh, this is the DAW for me?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, it was about 10 years ago, and I had been using the Roland 2480 um, virtual, you know, the virtual studio, and I ran up against its limitations eventually. I mean, I really mastered that machine, but it did have limitations, and um, I realized it was time for me to pick a doll and get a good computer and, you know, go in that direction if I wanted to take my mixes and my productions to the next level. And so at that time, I checked out Sonar and Nuendo and uh, Pro Tools, which made me physically ill. And <laughs> and then at the same time, I read an article. Um, Todd Rundgren had just produced his Arena record, and I read about how he had done that, including all the drums, all the guitars, everything on Reason. And I was like, Reason? I had heard of it, and I understood that it was a great, like, platform for doing dance music because they do have a lot of great synthesizers, um, drum machines, uh, loopers, sample players, and that kind of thing, but they did not as yet have the capability to record audio. So right at that same time that I heard about Todd, um, they were just getting ready to release record is what they called it, Reason Record, and it was a basically an add-on to Reason. They have since, of course, incorporated it all together. And me being a big Todd Rundgren fan, I'm like, damn, if he did that record on there, then uh, it might work for me. And uh, when I was a repair manager at Haight-Ashbury Music Center, the Lion 6 rep, who was Propeller Heads uh, distributor in the U.S., gave me a bunch of free software and asked me to beta test it. Nice. and i fell in love with it it was it was just wonderful it did all kinds of cool stuff sounded fantastic i really loved the workflow and i really liked the virtual mixer so instead of having you instantiate every damn little thing when you create a new track including (laughs) your gain control and eq even just a filter it's all there you look at your uh your input channel, and it's an SSL mixer starting with the gain control going down through your dynamics, EQs, eight sends, six inserts, all that stuff is all there on every channel available at all times. And, you know, from, from being an old school guy who's used to working on large mixing boards, that was perfect. It was an easy paradigm to get used to. And so I started making records with it never looked back. Uh, I think the first record I produced on that was uh, Eric McFadden's uh, Train to Salvation. And then uh, the next Jenny Kerr record that we released, um, Extra Strength. No, no. Um, Feet of Clay. Yeah. Yeah. The next Jenny Kerr record. So um, it was very cool. And uh, yeah, I stuck with it ever since.
0: Gotcha. So we keep bringing up McFadden a lot. Um, McFadden has a history of his own that's quite impressive. Um, So impressive that I don't know how much we can fit fit into. (laughs) (laughs) That's another interview. Yeah, he's an uh, impressive guy. When did how did you link up with him, and when did you start working with him?
1: Well, uh, we've known him like uh, professionally as uh, you know colleagues on the San Francisco club scene since pretty much since he got here with his original band, Liar. He moved out here from uh, you know New Mexico, and mm-hmm. and they were regulars on the scene. He'd play uh, with the uh, the Faraway Brothers at the Blue Lamp all the time, and and we'd bump into each other all the time at um, at the Paradise Lounge, uh, bottom of the hill. Everything we, we were just friends. And then uh, in the early 2000s, he actually moved in with Jenny and I at our uh, Victorian on Baker Street. And he was, ended up being our housemate, a roommate, downstairs in the dungeon for close to eight years. Mm-hmm. So in 2002, he asked me if I'd help him record some demos of some acoustic songs that he did. And we recorded a, two or three songs, and it turned into um, uh, Devil Moon, which was... Uh, an all-acoustic, full-length CD. That, that was our first one together, and I've since uh, produced something like seven records for him now over the years, including the very latest one called Starving at the Feast, which is available on Bad Reputation Records. He comes to me when he uh, wants to do his um, more acoustic-based stuff, because uh, you know he knows I have an ear for that, and I pay a lot of attention to detail when it comes to acoustic guitars and vocals.
0: Well, you are you are one of those guys that is. I mean, I, I don't know how exactly to describe this. I think the only way is to paint a picture of uh, what one would walk into when they when they came into your studio. Uh, Phil Billy at his studio has a uh, a. a Guitar tree. It's one of those stands that that that's guitars all around. And for the majority of knowing him, it was completely filled with acoustic guitars, mandolas, mandocellas, things of that nature. Um, and there were very few electrics on the wall save for the occasional one or two when there was electric guitar recording happening.
1: Exactly, yeah. But the acoustics are always out because, not just for recording, but because we, uh, well, Jenny writes all the time, and we're always rehearsing, um, so you had to have get acoustic guitars handy at all times, and still do. So now, in addition to the trees, there's actually three of them. We've put uh, guitar hangers all up, um, you know, in the walls of the house. So it's kind of ridiculous, really. There's probably... 12 out right now and another 10 or 12 um in the shower and in one of the back uh (laughs) storage storage closets
0: yeah you you know i'm starting to catch up with you i got i got probably six out right now and a couple under the bed and you know a couple i should say
1: i don't have (laughs) anything here that we don't use um you know it's there's it's not like i just keep it around because it's pretty or whatever i, I oh have of course a, i have a rule about that i'm not a collector these are all uh here for a specific reason so um you know i've got everything from modern sound and concert guitars to really nice woody old old gibsons so whatever sound you need you know we got it right. here at
0: okie doke studios right your your Gibson from a kid is and your modern breed love that you gig with are as important as your electric screwdriver in the shop it they're pretty they're much they they're tools they're for tool. a job
1: the tools for the job and they also give me joy you know they it's something I pick something up and you know it can uh, really open your heart to pick up an old guitar. There's no question about it,
0: right. And even and even a new guitar. Some people just have the some some companies just make them right, like Breedlove.
1: They do Breedlove. That's one that's one uh, very good example of that. And normally I wouldn't be into new guitars, but if it works, it works. And that thing is a real workhorse. I I played something like two hundred gigs a year for the last seven or eight years with that thing, and um, there's never been a dropout or a false move, not once.
0: Well, and you have that thing dialed. You, you made that, you made that guitar your own. You what? You refretted it. You've done heavy fret work on it. Oh yeah, Sold, a lot of
1: stuff. Uh, well, stainless steel jumbo frets, uh, real precision tuners, uh, that kind of thing. It really helps a lot. It's it plays like a
0: Ferrari now. Right now, speaking of tuning machines, I think this is something that not a lot of people, especially studio guys, think of. If you have instruments, you should you should take care of them. You shouldn't just leave them in a corner. Um, and that that's something that Phil taught me, especially being both a student of his recording work and a student of his tech work. Um, do you subscribe to the idea of locking tuners, or do you, do you think they're sort of hooey, and you're like, if you string them up right, they work?
1: No, not at all. Yes, if you string it right, they work. I find locking tuners to be a pain in the ass. Um, I had them (laughs) on my casino for about a year. I thought, well, because it had the Bigsby on it and all that stuff, maybe that would help with the tuning issues. They don't help with tuning issues. There's other things that need to be addressed to optimize um, your guitar's performance and ensure against tuning issues. But the wrap around the head, the peg, is not one of them if you do that right. Right. So. So, yeah, and, and they're just more of a pain in the ass. I mean, especially as a guitar tech on the road, you'll double the time it takes to change a string on stage if you have locking tuners. Really? Yeah. Because they have, a, there's, there's a bunch of different designs. And, yes, there are some that you can just dial with a finger and lock it down and then take it up. But there's a bunch of other designs that are a pain in the ass to figure out how to lock them um like the prs version for instance is ridiculous um yeah so i you know just to make it clear there are locking tuners that lock more easily but the rest of them are more
0: hassle than they're worth understood
1: in my humble opinion you know but what (laughs) do i know
0: (laughs) sure i mean everybody's got an opinion
1: that's true, you know. And and when you do as many gigs or have been on the road as long as I am, the main thing that I've done is to optimize everything from, you know, how well the guitar is set up to how my PA gear works, you know, how easy the pedal board is to get up and down. Every little thing that you can do to increase reliability and decrease setup and teardown time, uh, is you know helpful.
0: And this is something that I learned from you both as playing on stage and in studio the the least amount of time you can you you have to use to set up and break down and make eq adjustments and changes on the fly while recording the better
1: absolutely and uh you know i think one of the things you might be talking about is um recording aggressively i i can't stand the kind of decision paralysis that happens when uh recordists or producers put off certain decisions until the very end um when I listen to a song, when I start producing a song, I try to have a vision for it, talk with the artist, and we decide how it should sound and and uh that includes getting your tones. So when I go down to tape as it were, I'm including my gain structure, how much how much hair there might be on the actual tone and then the EQ, even compression. I'll put all that stuff on the tone going down so later on when I go to mix there's a bunch of stuff that I don't have to do anymore or even think about because that's how it's going to be. Sure. And uh, I just like the way I, I like that workflow. And for me, I, that's how I like the sound of records that are done like that. Um, I think personally you lose a little bit if you try to add too too much stuff later on.
0: I agree with that. I mean, of course, you know, in amidst a pandemic, I can't really do so much uh so much initially, and do have to add some things later on, of course, you know, me having horn players in my own band and interacting with guys with big horn sections and lots of yeah, large bands there is <clears throat> there is some of that that has to be done, but of course, you know, if you can get as much of your groundwork as possible, um that's a that's a fantastic way to work.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it helps if you have the cooperation of your band, if, if they can let you do your job while you run everything down and get your sounds, then it's certainly helpful.
0: Of course. I I do kind of want to ask you on, on one note, um, what, what you're looking forward to amidst a pandemic are you, are you looking at gear upgrades? What, what, what's going on in the studio right now?
1: Um, well, the main thing that we've been doing, I had to build a new machine, and in going through all the uh, hard disks and stuff, we discovered that we had a whole bunch of uh, unfinished songs, st- songs in various stages of completion, and we consolidated all that, and we've been going through everything and uh, finishing whatever overdubs were needed and um, doing you know, really fine mixes, and there's some stuff that was actually a few years old, and it's been fun for me to uh, try some remixes, you know, because you always get better, or at least you should. You know, your ear gets better, you learn new techniques, and uh, maybe you've got some uh, gear or plug-in choices you didn't have before. So so that's what I'm looking forward to. Jenny and I are uh, just hunkering down here and uh, trying to complete on some music and and release that, as well as making videos of some of those. So there you have it
0: this is a very interesting conversation for me to have admittedly having phil's a mentor for so many years we've spoken of his past many times before However, our conversation today has allowed me additional insight that I haven't thought of before. In a way, this conversation has not only given me a deeper look into my friend and mentor, but it's opened my eyes to some further understanding of the knowledge and reasoning Phil bestowed upon me. In this sense, talking to Phil today has given me a better look into myself. Uncle Phil Billy, thank you for being on the show. It seems that every time I talk to you, I learn a bit more. Our conversation here was no exception. At some point, we'll have to get you down from Marin County and here in Blue Girl. With the modifications and upgrades happening at the studio, I really would like to see what you gravitate towards and what sounds you get out of the room. For all of you listening, if you want to check out any of Phil's work, search up Phil Billy on SoundCloud. You'll find some really damn fine stuff. For his work with Jenny Kerr, all you gotta do is just go to Jennycurr.com and for his work with Eric McFadden, check out ericmcfadden.com or anywhere you get your music. This is Blue Girl Gear Talk, a segment of the podcast where I talk about gear I have in the studio, gear I want to get soon, and some dream gear that's a bit farther down the line. Today, I want to take a deep dive into outboard EQ, specifically clones of the classic Pultec EQP-1A. Now, in my studio right now, I have a clone from Clark Technic called the EQPKT, which is a pretty solid, affordable clone of the Pultec EQP-1A3. In fact, the signal chain for my mic right now is a Focusrite preamp into that very EQ. As I'm sure you can hear, it's a pretty solid choice for an outboard EQ and at only 275 American for a B-Stock unit and 350 brand new, it's a pretty damn good deal. Now, what I will be doing soon is getting a second one of these and putting the same upgraded tubes as my current one. This is so I can use them in a stereo pair for anything from acoustic guitars to Leslie cabinets, drum overheads, even mastering if I really wanted to. Now, if I had a little bit more money, I would go for the clones of EQP-1As by Warm Audio, which was a company that Phil and I took a pretty deep dive into earlier. Warm Audio has very quickly become a staple in smaller studios and studios with smaller budgets. Even in bigger studios that have original Pultecs, 1176s, you name it, WA has made a name in making excellent gear that the pros with big budgets trust too. Now, what would be my dream gear? Well, I think it's obvious. I would love to have a pair of original Pultec EQP-1As into my studio. But, given how pricey the originals are, mixed with how good the clones are both in sound quality and price... I think I'll be sticking with these for the foreseeable future. This is Music from Blue Girl, a segment about works in progress here at the studio. Today, since I spoke to my mentor, Phil Billy Milner, who has been unearthing old projects recently, I thought I'd share with you all a song that I found from over two years ago. In going through my old project files, I found this one that had been left untouched since I was 16 years old. You want to know the best part about this ordeal for me? The project file specifically is labeled Don't Abandon, It's Good. (laughs) Seeing this file in my project folder, I was instantly reminded of Will Magid's piece of key advice all the way back in episode 2. Polish the turds. So, armed with that advice and being curious of what I would have written as a 16-year-old, I listened to it. I will admit, the demo's pretty rough. but there were some pretty damn cool ideas in there. So, having found this old song of mine, I got to work. What you're about to hear is still a rough demo, it doesn't have a lot, and the arrangement is not completely finished. With that said, I'm really stoked with how this tune is coming out, and I think you guys will dig it too. So, without further ado, here is a nameless tune I wrote from when I was 16 years old. I hope you enjoy. That's the show, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. A special major big thank you to my mentor, Mr. Phil Billy Milner, for coming on the show. Man, it was so awesome talking to you. It reminds me that amidst this pandemic, I should call you up more. Hey, if you ever want to take a break from Marin County and come down to SF for a socially distanced session, the door is always open. We'll be ready to record when you get here. I'm especially interested to see what gear you gravitate towards in my studio now, since we've been doing a bunch of gear upgrades. Speaking of gear, I want all of you listeners' opinions. What do you think of Clark Technic, and what do you think of Warm Audio? Also, since Clark Technic is owned by the same parent company as Behringer, what do you guys think of Behringer gear? I know I'm not afraid to say I use plenty of it. Send me an email, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. That's the number two. If you want to share any pictures of your setups with us, tag us on Instagram and Twitter. The show is ready to record. That is the end t-o spelling of two and the studio is blue girl productions sf tune in next time we're going to have the crazy talented John O'Manson on the show we'll be talking about everything from starting as a studio rat in new york city all the way to his time living in europe and his studio in santa fe new mexico called kitchen sink as always there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you for now this is daniel the d3 cohen signing out from blue girl productions worldwide headquarters and studios in san francisco california We're ready to record.